Hey, Jeff Johnston here, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Super stoked to have my good friend Robert Jones Black on today from Greensville, North Carolina. I have to get that right. Um, Robert, uh, it was great meeting you this summer. What a what an opportunity we had to be a part of something that I, I hope is something that's an annual event, and that's the Impact Cup, which is a great way for uh, young um, young men and women to get involved in mental health, which you and I have a passion to, and it's kind of a convergence of where we're, we're meeting right now. Um, how about a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know you have a famous lineage, which we either can divulge right now, right up front, or we can anticipate it for later in the show. But I think anyone looking over your shoulder uh, <laughs> and sees your name, Robert Jones Black, can probably figure out uh, where your lineage is from. So uh, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, yeah, that I guess we'll go ahead and let it out. So great grandson. Get it <laughs> let out the, the secret way. out. <laughs> get it out of the way. Uh, and uh, yes, yeah, so uh, good to be on the show. This summer was was really, uh, you know, just an eye opening experience that both you and I had. I know we'll talk uh, talk about that today. Getting to know your story and just your drive for purpose. Uh, we connected immediately, man. <laughs> that was uh, that was really cool. So I have lots of roads we can start to go down, but I think what we'll do is we'll start with the the lineage. We'll start with your family history um, and something you're very proud of. I know it's been part of your DNA for literally your whole life, but lately you've taken upon yourself to be involved with some nonprofit projects that um, you know look at youth mental health and also with the game of golf and how you can golf with a purpose, yeah. uh, which is such a, a really neat way to, to look at golf mirrors life in so many ways, you know? It, it does. And I think that was one of the biggest takeaways as I matured and really understood what my great grandfather's impact on golf was um, on the sport of golf. Uh, of, of course, what he did on the golf course uh, is immeasurable, uh, especially as, uh, as an amateur. Uh, but when I really started seeing how he interpreted the game and how he related that interpretation to life, uh, especially this, you know, kind of all started really coming together, pandemic and post-pandemic. It gave me a new perspective of how to celebrate his legacy. Um, you know, as mm -hmm. a family, we obviously, we've got commercial properties and things of that nature. We've got, um, you know, a system in place where the corporation uh, called Jones Ayers uh, actually owns the intellectual property uh, that maintains all governance of the use and lightness of the name and image. Um, and we've got a patriarch there. We've got a, a Bob Jones, the fourth, who is, you know, the historian mm -hmm. and knows everything. Um, so as third generation, I think it's uh, you respect that space and you respect that brand of what Bobby Jones has become. Uh, mm -hmm. But I just saw a different piece there and a different motivation for me to say, I will never have his golf game. Let's go and get that out up front too. <laughs> I will never have that golf game. Every now and then you might see a lucky shot that looks like I have the golf game, but I don't. But there was, but I just saw something there where uh, just that, that connectivity between golf and life. I was like, I think at the yeah. time trying to think about starting a charity, I was like, this is such a great backbone and such a great uh, influence to start the whole process. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. So you've got this uh, attachment to obviously the game of golf, but now it's kind of um, uh, gotten into uh, mental health. Um, let's talk a little bit about why mental health drew you in and kind of, you know, I know we all have mental health challenges. I, I know 
I know yours, you've talked at length uh, publicly when I was down there and, you know, obviously mine, but you know, here we are two middle-aged, you know, men in America and we struggle with mental health. Um, you and I both do. And I think talking about it can make other people appreciate it and can relate to what they're going through. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, and it's scary. I mean, uh, it, it's frightening to kind of come out that way and then worry that, uh, people can interpret a mental health, uh, we'll call it struggle, uh, Mm -hmm. something that we address every day as being a weakness. Um, and so, you know, this year was when I really, you know, kind of did decide to start writing about my personal, uh, you know, battle with mental health, which has been, um, anxiety and panic attacks and some depression and everything. There's a point. By the way, your writing is, your writing's great, man. You are phenomenal. Uh, what, whatever you lack on the golf course, you, you pick up with a pen in your hand. So very good. I I love, I love reading your material. And likewise, I think, yeah, we, we, again, we have so many things that just kind of clicked when, you know, just on this introduction and, uh, we, we both have an ability to understand the power of words, um, and Mm -hmm. used in the right context too many times in today's world. And I think a lot of what we see on the mental health side is the wrong use of the power of words. Um, yeah. There's a guy that I follow uh, that's actually a big part of uh, of the story of why I decided to start a charity. Uh, his name's Brooks Gibbs. And Brooks goes around the country and he speaks about uh, bullying to schools and everything. Mm. And one of his points is we as humans have given words too much power. It used to be uh, sticks and stones may break my bones. But yeah, that's how we grew it up. Is, uh, you know, you t- say something mean to me or say something I don't agree with, and we get really defensive now. And that's just part a new part of culture. Um, so it's right. good to use the word, the power of words in a positive way. Um, you know, that's I think that's probably the best way to look at it. And then hopefully over time, we start understanding that, um, you know, just the, the responsibility of, of what comes out of our mouth or what is typed onto a social media board. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it can be really impactful when you look at not just the words we choose to communicate with each other, but the words we tell ourselves. So, for example, yesterday, um, I didn't feel like um, I really didn't feel like working out. You know, I didn't just one of those days, which is, isn't abnormal at 56 years old to not feel like running for an hour and a half on my elliptical. Yeah. And instead of thinking, you know, I have to work out, you know, to maintain my health and my coping mechanisms for mental health, I thought. I get to work out. There's people in hospitals right now, people in wheelchairs. There's people that like my dad are 90 years old that he can't run for an hour and a half. So my running is for all those people that can't do it today. So it isn't just the words that we reframe that we use with each other. It's the words and the stories we tell ourselves that are probably more impactful. Um, you know, instead of saying I have to diet, how about I get to eat healthy? You know, um, I'm better versus bitter, you know, um, do things happen to you or do things happen for you? You know, the, these are stories we can tell ourselves all day long. And I think they go a long ways into empowering us to self-assess our own mental health. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, have a better quality of life, you know? I mean, and just those examples you just gave. I mean, look at the, the slight manipulation of right. word structure and sentence structure and how much power and definition changes within that. Um and if anybody's kind of going, all right, these guys are over here talking about sentence structure and words. What does that have to do with mental health? I'm, that's what I, again, my point is everything. I mean, absolutely everything. everything. 
everything. And that's where the, some of the initiatives that I know generation next is passionate about and, and living undeterred project is passionate about. And some of the other projects we're working on are, are ways that adolescents can self-assess their own situation without it coming from adults, because we know when we tell kids not to do something or how to do something, that's a whole different mindset than if we show them how to do something. I, I tell adults all the time, if you want your kids not to drink, then you quit drinking. You know, if you want your kids not to be swearing a lot, then you don't swear, you know? And I think as adults, we really have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, how are we, what intentional life are we leading that we can impact the generation behind us? Because they're looking at us, Robert, they're, their eyes are wide open. They're watching our lead. They're seeing how we respond to things like divorce and financial woes and, you know, weight battling with our weight and things like that. And and so they, if we respond one way, they think that's acceptable. So I think a lot of it starts with, for us wanting to change the next generation, we need to really look inside deep in ourselves and make changes to us first. Right. I, I, one, I, again, 100%. And, you know, I think that we're a unique and, and maybe, uh, well, no, I, I would say, you know, you as well, but we're in a unique age group where I think, you know, we have to bear some responsibility, at least in terms of, you know, online and mobile behaviors of our kids that, mm-hmm. you know, you, we see this finger point, pointing happening all the time about kids are, you know, uh, faces into the iPads and way too much time consuming yeah. that. And I think it was, an, you know, kind of an anomaly on how that got set up. And this is personal opinion only. I don't have any. Uh, you know, research or anything supporting this. But um, to me, I think our generation and our age group, we saw the birth of this ability to go from uh, a phone call communication, fax communication and things to Mm. eventually got to email to then this mobile device came out, the flip phones with the, you know, pressing the one, two, three buttons to do the text messaging to the smartphone. And then when the smartphone hit and we all of a sudden had everything that was on our desktops and laptops and everything was now mm-hmm. sitting in our hand, we were fascinated. We were the ones mm-hmm. that were sitting there going, this is just absolutely unbelievable. This is, you know, changed my life. I can now check in on anything at any time. And I think we were kind of the first to set the, this, this, you know, I guess normalcy in life to have our faces in a phone or in a mobile device. So naturally, right now we're seeing the age group, the kids that were five, six, seven, eight years old during that time frame, that early 2000s, mid 2000s time frame, now becoming adults. And now we're seeing what the long term repercussions of that disruption of proper development is. And so I always say, I mean, like, you know, look in the mirror first before we start saying that this is the lost generation or um, right. that they are doomed in the future because they have no social skills and all these things. We kind of created that because of our own fascination. And now mm. I think we have to, as adults, understand that ourselves and say, OK, let's get past the fascination. We now understand that there's got to be a responsibility that comes with this and let's start that process with kids and not to say that technology and uh, social media are the only issues that are, you know, kind of causing this disruption, but it certainly, I think is a key indicator. And I think in 10 years, we'll see the research that proves that. So generation next, let's talk about that project. Um, the nonprofit generation next, um, 
where did this come from? What do you guys actually do? And how do you see it impacting adolescent mental health? Uh, loaded questions. I gave you the easy story. ones first. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I have to, when I tell this on the creation and the origin of even getting into this space, I, I go all the way back to pre pre pandemic. Cause I think pan, the pandemic was really kind of for a lot of people, um, you know, was the eye opener. And then unfortunately for a lot of people was a major disruptor. Um, but mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, I was uh, I'd started my company in 2016, and I was working on licensing and representation of brands. I started that obviously uh, working with my family and the Bobby Jones brand. Um, but I picked up uh, a client, uh, a fascinating client, a Vander Holyfield, four-time heavyweight champion, and yeah. we worked all through 2019 on kind of what does the future of a Vander look like and. Uh, to keep it short today, what we were focusing in on going into 2020 was a Vander being positioned as this mentor for youth. Number one, because he grew up essentially, I don't say raised because his mom did a fantastic job of raising him, but he spent every single day after school in the boys club uh, of America in Atlanta, Georgia. And so Mm -hmm. he has this natural ability to mentor. And so we wanted to see him, uh, really take his focus away from being so charged on uh, commercial opportunities, which obviously make the money. And I understand that, but really to enhance his brand and be uh, that mentor figure, because he's a great speaker, especially to an age group of like eight to 15. Um, As we entered the pandemic area, uh, we were having some significant conversations with some of the nation's biggest social and emotional learning content creators and dis, uh, uh, distributors. And we were hearing this over and over and over about how big this problem is, and it's not being talked about. Pandemic goes into full force. Uh, any, you know, any hope by Evander that we were going to have a big commercial year quickly eroded because we lost in the month of April, we lost every uh, public speaking event, every appearance fee, all of that disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it just became about what can we do with the foundation and what can we do with this charity? So as we're working through that and we start this hashtag campaign called Unite for Our Fight, and this is when April, when everything was shut down and mm-hmm. celebrities were going online and it was really kind of an interesting time, you know, looking back on, on how many people were trying to rise up to keep the spirits of everyone else, you know, Right. So we were doing the same thing. And I have a wonderful friend of mine and a key investor to my company. He's in Dallas. Great guy. West Point grad, Ohio State MBA, sold his first Mm -hmm. company in 2016 to IBM uh, for a a, a great, you know, sizable amount of money and had gone and done some investments with some smaller groups and some startups like myself. on April 17th, he was having a normal Friday and he was in his office, his own office working. And his uh, daughter, one of his two daughters came downstairs and said that uh, his son, who was 12 years old, Hayden, had hurt himself. And so he ends the phone call he was on and he runs up to Hayden's room and uh, and he found Hayden in his closet. And. Um, It was the unimaginable. It was the unthinkable. Hayden had uh, hung himself. Um, He passed away uh, shortly after that. 
Brad did everything he could to try to, uh, you know, just handle the situation, mm -hmm. get 911 there, but it was, it was just too late. Um, this was four days before Hayden's 13th birthday. Um, the situation that of a couple things that were really, you know, interesting was one, this was a reaction to a video game and that wow. Hayden had gotten angry and he had thrown his remote and he had hit the monitor and broken the monitor. And this was the second time in three months, rather than having the emotional intelligence, the emotional IQ to understand that, yes, he is going to get in big trouble. He is going to get yelled at, but it's not the end of the world. Hayden could right. not understand that he has to get past that and he has to go and confront his parents about what he had done. And he took this other route that we all know, um, hey, he wasn't dealing with mental health. Um, he was a good kid, great student, athlete, everything. Um, just a, you know, a kind of a rational, impulsive decision that was made. Uh, and, and, you know, Robert, you know, in defense of Hayden real quick, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed till age 25. So we got to give, and I think you are in agreement on this. We got to give kids a break that, you know, for them, that type of response, you know, based on their brain development, it, although it's abnormal, it's not as abnormal. It would be for a fully developed brain. Yeah. So I think we need to be as advocates, you know, understanding that a lot of these adolescents are, are reasoning skills, emotional skills, you know, they're trailing, um, their peer group that aren't too much older than them. You know, the difference between a 12 and a 16 year old is massive. Yeah. Um, even a 16 to an 18 year old can be big, but you get out to say between 23 and 25, it's really not that big a deal. So those ranges and ages can be a big deal when they're younger. So yeah, I think what you're saying in regards to these children that, that are unfortunately taking their lives, you know, their brains just aren't fully. And that's one of the reasons why they need to stay away from things like marijuana and vaping and things like that as well. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I think 100%. And I think that was, you know, to your point, that was, I think that it is, I don't say was, is the question mm -hmm. uh, that Everfi and some of these uh, social and emotional learning groups are focusing in on is um, if you look at that age group, 15, 20 years ago, where they were in terms of emotional maturity, uh, is miles ahead of where it is today. The question is why? I would agree. Yeah, why? Yeah, why? Um, that's a good question. And that's, I think that's when uh, Brad, my business partner, um, again, I always say this about him, like just this soldier mentality that some of us have. And there's, a, I think, a guy on this uh, podcast that has it as well. Otherwise, <laughs> you don't go touring around the United States in an RV for a summer. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if soldier is the word hey, I would we're use. Gonna go um, uh, <laughs> so we're going to go soldier. Uh, but Brad, you know, with that West Point mentality and everything, you know, within the week of Hayden's uh, passing, um, Brad was on the phone with me saying, I need to get awareness set up. I don't want another person to go through this. Mm -hmm. And I fear that more are coming. And so we mm -hmm. cranked out a website in 24 hours. We started a fundraising uh effort raised $65,000, which Brad then turned into a, uh, a 15 minute short film, uh, well-produced, beautiful short film called almost 13. Um, but what I, what I saw Brad kind of doing was he took charge of the situation rather than mourning. Uh, like mm -hmm. he skipped that process. And again, I'm never going to question mm -hmm. as to why somebody would do that. And he created a video just to go real quick on this. He created a video that he put out on Facebook uh, 
and it started getting viral and it was up to 75,000, 100,000 views. But that gentleman I talked about, the bullying gentleman, Brooks Gibbs, the reason we know Brooks, Brooks came across that video and took it from a 22 minute video down to an 11 minute video and he sent it out. And that video mm-hmm. today is over 135 million views. And Brad has been on wow. every major news publication you can imagine uh, internationally. I mean, from Japan right. to the uh, UK to the United States, talking about this 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 problem and, and what the pandemic created, uh, which accelerated, if anything, accelerated mm-hmm. what we were already seeing in uh, youth development. So when I was watching all this, I was just like, I can't sit back. I have a, a at the time he was six and uh, during 2020, but my son now eight years old, I cannot, I'm not a guy that sits back and says, I hope somebody fixes it. Not something like this. Right. I was like, right. I need to get involved. And that's when there was just that understanding that re just kind of reanalyzing what Bobby Jones wrote and what some of his quotes we're saying uh, the you know the, the the most famous one is uh, golf is a lot like the, the the game of golf is a lot like the game of life. You get bad breaks from good shots, you get good breaks from bad shots, but you have to play the ball as it lies. Such yeah. an incredible way to just yeah, play. isn't that isn't that perfect? It is. And so then there was the second quote, then there was the third quote, then there was the tenth quote, and I was like, my great granddad one hundred years ago was confronting the mental challenges of golf and life, but he didn't know he was doing right. it. There right. was no reason to right. do it. There was, you know, so that was enough for me to say, uh, we have an opportunity to start something. Um, I impulsively started it. I was like, I want to get out and I want to talk about the issue. We'll figure out how we can fix it later. So we spent right. 2020, the, the last, or I'm sorry, 2021, really speaking about what was happening uh, in the United States specifically um, with the disruption of youth mental health, then towards the end of the year and then into this year, we started creating what would our proprietary plan be, which was putting golf in as an experience and then mental health being kind of an offset or an offput of what that experience was actually teaching them. So we've we've created the the program Change Your Course. We're going to launch it in 2023, uh, and it's 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 simple, Jeff. It's take situations that you have on the golf course, and those situations have a mental and emotional response to handle the situation. So let's learn there. Let's learn about what that is because it's more fun to talk about that. Then mm-hmm. as our uh, participants learn that we simply just show them, watch this when we take a similar situation. So I always use first T jitters as the example, first T jitters. What is a real life situation that creates the same mental and emotional response as first T jitters? Asking a, a job interview, job. Yeah. A job interview, job interview yep. public speaking, speaking yep. in front of a class. All of these right. create that first T jitters. So if we could show them, this is how you manage that on the golf course. Then just a very light, subtle message of saying, watch, watch how this works when you do it in real life. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to try to hit as many people as we can with that starting in 2023. I love it. I, I love any project that can utilize uh, the mind, you know, um, because it's been a big, 
a big help for me in dealing with what I went through is reframing, you know, um, looking at uh, a relatable situation. So, for example, when Seth died and then followed up by Prudence, we were able to use what happened to Seth and how we went through that as a template. Uh, what we did wrong, I, I drank for 14 months right after he died, which in hindsight, that was that was a poor way to, to cope. Um, and then what we did right, you know, we did the AJGA leadership links, reached out to Kevin and, and, uh, and Beth. And that, that was, though, those were good decisions we made raising money through birdies for, 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 for Seth, um, setting up a scholarship. So we took that opportunity that we had through death to, uh, look at both good and bad decisions and then try to replicate more of the good ones. Next time we were given the same situation, almost like when you go to the first tee on day two, you go to the first tee on day three. I mean, you're going to replicate these things over and over. And if you can get your mind to kind of, you know, I don't want to say work like a machine, but you know, darn well that the best athletes in the world, that's how their minds work. They're, they're almost emotionless. Um, and if there are emotions they're they're the good positive emotions, not the negative ones. I'll tell you a funny story on, or not funny, a true story. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of people are not aware of this. Uh, I'm going to tap back onto the, the, the Bobby Jones piece of this. Um, all yeah, right. perfect. So yeah, he, he started becoming obviously very well known as a junior, uh, when he was just 11 years old and was entering, sort of entering tournaments down in the Georgia area and competing, if not winning against people two, three, four times his age. Uh, so by the time he hit what I consider to be uh, out of the junior, uh, we'll call it the junior golf career and into the true amateur career, uh, he was constantly sitting there at second or third place. Go all the way back to like the 1920 uh, time frame of the majors that he uh, he was just doing United States at that time. He had not yet crossed the ocean, but uh, but he kept finishing out, not winning and finishing second, third, fourth and things of that nature. There was an incident, we call it the lean years and the golden years of his career. And the lean years were pre-1923, where uh, he had a situation where he was in a tournament and he had a really, really bad temper um, growing up as a, as a kid and through his junior hmm. golf. That was a, a, a known fact about Bobby Jones. Um, but he had a situation in a tournament where he got mad, threw his golf club, it ricocheted off the ground, hit a woman in the leg, cut her leg wide open. Hmm. And so after the tournament, um, he received a letter from the president of the USGA and it was a one strike letter. It's like, that's your one strike. Do anything like this again. You'll never play in a USGA event, uh, for the rest of your life. Wow. Um, so Bobby Jones took that time and he, he concluded two things. Number one, I cannot have a bad temper on the golf course anymore. I will not be allowed to play. So he wrote a very nice letter right. back saying it would never happen again. But to your point, the motionless piece of an athlete, he also adopted a second piece to that. I'm also not going to show uh, happiness, excitement on a good shot or a good tournament or a win either, mm -hmm. because what mm -hmm. Bobby felt like he was doing was he was opening the window, a window of himself to who he was competing against. When you're making mm -hmm. these outbursts and when you're showing your emotions outside as an athlete in a competition right. setting, you're giving the other person or people a lot of information about where you're headed. Oh yeah. So yep. is it any coincidence that he makes that switch? That was actually, that's in 1923, 1922. And in 1923 to 1930, 
he ropes off 13 majors, four of them in 19th. Amazing. All right. So I look at that and I go, whether or not that's written in history as that was the change, uh, I have to embrace the decision he made that he would not show any emotion in competition, not good or bad, Mm. and what that did to his career. Something to think about for anybody that uh, has kids watching or kid themselves that's competing right now. Keep those emotions away from your competitor's eyes. I know when Ian was getting recruited in high school, I was walking with a coach one time and it's kind of funny because as a parent, you know, I assumed that the coach was watching great shots and, you know, 20 foot Tiger Woods fist pump putts, you know, things like that. And, uh, the coach said, no, he goes, I want to see a kid duck hook it out of bounds. I want to see a kid miss a one foot par. I want to see a kid shank a ball on a par three into the pond. And I want to see how he reacts. He goes, a lot of my recruiting, all these kids hit good shots. If I only based uh, recruiting on kids that hit good shots, I'd have every kid on my team. But there's only a certain handful of kids that handle adversity as a challenge, not as a reason to crumble, but as a reason to to do good. And I always thought that that coach really had, a, and I never, I just, every time a coach followed in, I thought, don't hit a bad shot, don't hit a bad shot, you know, hit a good shot. And the reality was a lot of coaches, you know, it's not the great shots that impress you. It's how you react. And, and I, I remember one time another coach telling me that I like to pull up on a kid unannounced and watch him for a little bit and not know how he's playing based on his mannerisms. In other words, in other words, I watch, I want to watch a kid play for a hole that he doesn't know I'm watching. And I, I want to just not know if he's two under par, five under par or 10 over. And that's so true. Yes. Yeah, so true. You can tell kids today. When, and so you take it off the golf course. You watch your son come home from school. You can just tell his mannerisms. Something's wrong. What's on your mind? And I'm not saying to hide that. I'm not saying to fight through everything and, and be Tiger Woods mentality. That's an anomaly. He's an outlier. There's a lot less people like him than there are like you and me on the planet. I think, though, it's important, though, as a parent and as a mental health advocate that we're very observant to how a child behaves in front of us, their behavior, because it could tell how their day's going fairly well. Uh, uh, and even knowing some kids are like, some kids are predisposed to be kind of always a little bit sulky, a little bit looking like they're down. So you, you got to kind of adapt to each child. Absolutely. But yeah, there's just so many golf parallels and metaphors that go into life in general, um, not just for adolescents, but for, for all, all of us, um, life is, um, life's just like golf. You know, you hit the ball out of bounds on the first hole. You can't call timeout and substitute, right? <laughs> you can't, there's no halftime, no, you know, no there, there's, there's in competition. No, there's 15 minutes at the turn that you get to grab a ham sandwich and a diet Coke on the way out the clubhouse, you know, but yeah. it's just, it's a beautiful game. And, um, I really am kind of fortunate that golf became a real staple of our story, even though Seth never played golf. Um, but golf became part of our story through what Ian did through golf to raise awareness and money. And it still does. Yeah. I mean, just as recently as the impact cup, you and I met, you know, again, there's a story where golf now has brought two people together that have a common goal and that's to help, help kids make better choices under difficult situations, yeah. you know? No, for sure. So yeah, we got to thank Taylor, Taylor the, and Ian big time for that, right? 
Yeah, um, and I, you know, I've been in talking to Taylor since the Impact Cup, and I'm really trying to get her to be uh, involved in some of our projects and you as well um, to take this to another level because I'm tired of people dying. I'm tired of people being unhappy in, in a time when we have more abundance than any humans have ever had in the history of, of us. We seem to be the most uh, disconnected with ourselves. And there's a lot of blame to go around, right? I mean, we can point the finger in a lot of directions, but at the end of the day, we look in the mirror and that's the only person looking back at us is really the only person that's going to get us out of this problem. Um, we can't wait for the government. We can't wait for our employers. We can't wait for, um, you know, whatever we're doing to fix our problems. We have to do it ourselves. Yeah. And so a lot of mental health advocacy is, is um, trying to figure out, A, what the heck, where do we go wrong in our mental health and how do we get out of it? You know, yeah. that's interesting. I, I, uh, soon after the impact cup, I reached out to a former teammate of mine. Uh, I played soccer at Appalachian state and which is so great now that I can say, I, I love it, man. They've been, they've been, they've been awesome. Now. Yeah. But I just remember them knocking off Michigan like 20 years yeah, ago. Michigan, but... And then the A&M kind of renewed it, but uh, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great school in the North Carolina mountains. Beautiful school. Uh, Beautiful. I heard. It is absolutely. And, uh, but my teammate, Chad Hawley's now, um, uh, I think second in command or, uh, somewhere close to that with the big 10. And so we talked afterwards just because, you know, we're talking about the impact cup and that was 20 NCAA golfers that came into Atlanta and you know, competed mm. for two days, but also had a mental health workshop in the middle of it. Um, and it had, you know, pretty, uh, uh, jaw-dropping responses in terms of what we were truly hearing from, you know, these kids that are in the trenches as student athletes. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, Chad, Chad brought up a great point where it, it's such a unique situation that we're in that we as a university, as a conference, as individuals, uh, causation, we don't have time to really figure out why it is what it is. We have to go immediately yeah. into treatment. We have to go immediately into solution. So I think that's mm -hmm. why there's a little bit of a, a frontier here that allows people like you and like me and others uh, that can come in and create a creative solution for people to acknowledge or see where are they uh, with their own mental health and have they crossed a boundary to get into substance abuse? Have they crossed a boundary mm -hmm. where there's suicidal ideation? Have they crossed a boundary where um, they're massively depressed, but they're not letting anyone in their, in their, in their circle know about that depression, that they're masking. Right. If we right. can get that done through what you and I have the capability to do it, let the causation research catch up to us, let the government catch mm. up to us. I think that's the only winning formula right now, because like you said, the other way, and this is no knock on government, but it takes a while. Uh, it right. takes money. It takes a lot of, you know, just kind of getting through the legalities of everything. Um, we're in a situation where we can at least just get that awareness notched up both with parents and kids. And, uh, and, and that will ultimately, and I have seen it, and I'm sure you have seen it or heard it, it saves lives. People stop, they go, my son, I see some signs or that son themselves or daughter themselves saying, okay, I'm not okay. I'm going to go talk to my parents. You know, that's what, mm -hmm. that's what you and I have 
the ability to do right now because it there we don't know why we just know that there needs to be some treatment out there yeah um 800 americans a day die from suicide alcohol and overdose um and that's a death statistic think of the families where death hasn't come into their house yet that's in the millions so i think as an advocate it's easy to focus on um the deaths because that's how you kind of weaponize causes that's how you gain you, you bring attention to things by showing pictures of deceased people. But the reality is far more people are living through addictions and substance abuse and mental health issues and are dying right now. And, you know, we can't, you can't save the dead, but you certainly can do a lot to get those people that are really struggling. So they don't end up a statistic like Seth and Prudence and so many other people. Uh, I don't, a day doesn't go by and I'm sure you're in the same boat, Robert, where you meet somebody for the first time. Okay. And, um, you share your story. You know, you talked about the time I saw you speak down in Atlanta, you talked about your personal struggles, um, uh, with, with alcohol. Uh, I don't, I don't remember if there's any other substance use issues, but, um, you talked about, um, your mental health concerns. And I think in sharing those stories and becoming, you know, human, people can look at you and say, well, there's a successful business guy. There's a, there's a guy that, you know, probably, you know, was born in a pretty good situation, you know, how can this guy, and the reality is, hold on, stop. It happens every day. Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, Robin Williams. I mean, it, it happens every day and it doesn't really matter how much money you have, what color you are, what lineage you're from. Um, these thoughts make you human. And so we need to figure out ways we can give our adolescents this huge, quiver full of arrows with, with as many possible coping mechanism, mechanism tools we can give them and then tie it all together through some type of a planning process. Um, which is what you and I talked about the other day, which I'm excited done some of the initiatives we're working on, which, you know, certainly would enjoy, uh, getting your, your passions involved as well. Um, but there's a lot of us out there, Robert, and that's why the podcast has been very meaningful for me is I I'm meeting a lot of people like you throughout the country that, have these agendas that are altruistic, yeah. you know, you want to help people sincerely. Um, yet how do we do it? Where do we do it? When do we do it? Um, what's the most effective way we can do it? You see the biggest thing we have competing with our kids today. And I could ask you this question, you know, about, you know, raising awareness with drugs and raising awareness with, you know, alcohol and all these things. That's not what we're fighting against. Um, those, those are secondary distractions. We're fighting against their attention spans. That's the true enemy right now is how do we get kids to actually pay attention to what's going on in their lives and then self-assess and then be autonomous. So make, make their own decisions and understand the impact of consequences. But I think we're distracted by trying to focus on drugs and alcohol and all these, you know, could be actually symptoms, not causes, like you said. Right. Um, you know, we, we spend time. I don't know. I think I think sometimes we spend time in the wrong areas that we should be spending our attention. Our attention should be spent on children's attention. How can we best serve them by getting them to pay attention to what's going on in their lives? Um, and that is the challenge I think you and I have in front of us in designing programs and processes and platforms that can help kids. How in the heck do we get their attention? It's, it's big and because it's hijacked right yeah. now. It's completely hijacked. Yeah. And, and I think that's the, like you see it across the board too. If you even look at 
some of the stories around the rise of crime. And I always, um, uh, you know, you look at like New York and the New York City subway system and all this. And we're so yeah. focused on the violence side of that and the victim side of that, that we're not, right. we're not having a big enough, you, you hear it dangled around, but we're not having a big enough discussion of the mental health crisis that we have in homelessness right, right now. So there's a whole nother issue or a whole nother segment. Right. And I think that's one of the things that from a discipline standpoint, when I first started uh, and my vision in 2020, uh, when I was like, okay, I want to get this charity started. And the early part as I was um, trying to figure out messaging was one, I said, I'm not going to be a golf focused charity. I refuse. It's a universal problem. Uh, the solution is not in golf. It's in the schools. Right. Um, and, and I saw that and I was like, before I knew it, it was like, you're trying to fix this massive worldwide I'm going to say over a billion people in general that are suffering with some sort of mental health disorder. Instead of we have to pick where we can be powerful and impactful. And I think right. that's one of the things where if we're able to do that, then we can stop ourselves long enough to understand what, what is that attention span that our audience is going to have and how do we make that attention span longer? We will not be able to in our lifetime be able to solve this attention span issue. What we have to, I think, learn to do is how do we adapt messaging to fit into that attention span? And does that start showing some progress? Then as again, this, this process of understanding calls starts catching up to the problem, then we can start seeing where their direct focus needs to be. But I think that's it right now is Again, we we can't solve that bigger issue. So we have to take like these micro efforts to get in there. And I think you I mean, you said something I mean, just so right on about this attention span um, mm -hmm. and that you can't sit them down for an hour and talk to them in this capacity. No, and I think, again, in all the meetings I've had with the clinicians and the experts and the PhDs and all the, the things that uh, you and I aren't, uh, or at least I'm not um is there there is this common thread interwoven in this ability to get the adolescent to self-assess to know where they are on the continuum because you know we have a distinct advantage as adults because we were their age once so we know what they're going through maybe not specifically but we know what they're going through. We, we, we know what it's like to have our hearts crushed by our first love. We know what it's like to not make the athletic team or not make the band or not make show choir. We know what it's like to be in a job. We don't like flipping burgers, but you know, we're, we know what it's like. They can't really relate to anything we're going through because they've never been our age, but we can relate to their age. So how do we best explain to kids, show them, Hey, I know how you feel. Others have felt the same way in your age bracket for hundreds of years. Yet here we are, here we are. You're not happy with your life. You, you feel helpless and hopeless. How can I help? And, and I think that is what pulls at me every day is as a parent, you know, how can I, how can I help? What can I do to get kids to look at life from a different lens than what they're currently seeing it as, which is 
a brick. It, it's the end of the road there. Most, if you just randomly sample most 18 year olds in our society, they, they don't have any purpose. They don't have any meaning. They don't have any spirituality. They don't have any, you know, um, calling in their life. You know, um, I'm not saying I did Robert at that age. Both. Matter of fact, I know I didn't, I know I didn't, yeah. but I wasn't distracted. I mean, I, I could go out in the woods and we could walk with my brothers down a creek and we could look for frogs and snakes and we could play cowboys and Indians and we could, you know, be out on a nice fall day and, and never be inside our house. And now kids, they're just, I got this nice big backyard here with five or six houses around me. And the last time I've seen kids play in the backyard, you know, it's just doesn't happen. That's what's kind of missing is this connection to nature, connection to the universe to the earth, you know, we don't have it. And it's sad. It's tragic in a way that kids today now are just kind of conformed to this almost being zombies in a sense. And maybe that's why they're so lost because they really are lost. I think, yeah, I think the, there's, there's maybe a, some sort of disconnect. And, and to your point, especially a 16 year old, I don't expect a 16 year old to tell me what their purpose is. Right. But right. Things like spirituality, things like, family nucleus and, and these supporting physical interactions that we have, I think were what helped hundreds and thousands of years of humans just kind of have that understanding uh, and appreciation and value to life. Um, somehow that value has gotten diminished or just disconnected. What is that value to life? What, what, how do I understand that something that seems earth shattering at 16 years old will have zero impact when you're born. Mm. Yeah. And we mentioned purpose and you're right. That's a heavy word yep. for a 15 year old, yep. but what about motivation it's, and desire? Those are translatable words that we could implant in kids saying, you're not going to understand existentialism. You're not going to understand meaning and purpose. You're, you're too young, but you know what motivation is, you know, you get up in the morning and you, kind of how you brush your teeth fast, you eat fast, you kind of go on, you're, you're, you're excited about your day. That's the equivalent of an adult having meaning and purpose, you know, well, I think, um, or desire, you know, yeah. that feeling inside of you that you want to do good. You don't really know why, but you're driven to, to succeed. And so how do we, if a kid doesn't have that, how do we like, you know, <laughs> How do we put it in them? It's, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still, no, I'm I, learning I, this I, stuff every day, I mean, man. That's the, that, that, that's, that's the absolutely impossible question to answer at this point. Right. I'll go back to the beginning of this conversation and, and how you were mani manipulating word structure. And I think that mm -hmm. is probably one of the best examples we could use to talk about the mental state of a 12, 15, 16, 18 year old is mm -hmm. they just, how do we get them to just change the, the structure of of how they are perceiving life. They, again, I mean, I know all of us grew up in very, the, the future always seems uncertain. And you can go mm -hmm. back to the, you know, the seventies and, and everything and um, the sixties and seventies about peace, love movement and everything. And that was, you know, responding to so much change happen, happening in society at that time. Um, then, you know, like I grew up in the nineties uh, from teenager up through, you know, mid twenties and, uh, the 90s was kind of like this rebellion, redo, uh, uh, independence and everything. But we had all this. All what I'm talking about right now is is kind of like what you're saying. It was that motivation. It was that purpose 
where I don't maybe don't have a defined purpose, but I have a reason right. to get to graduation day. I have a reason right. to either. Uh, you can see a future. Yeah. You can see a future. And you yeah. see where you fit in that future. Right. I think that's, again, adults have to take some responsibility here and say, we're painting a really bad picture. We are. And we're painting that Yeah, picture. and social media is not helping no, at all. It's, it's, it's right. so bad. And I think to go to your uh, sentence structure at the beginning, it's just changing one or two words where this isn't right. a problem. It's an opportunity. Um, this is opportunity that we are looking at. Yeah. You have opportunity to cor course correct. You have an opportunity to innovate climate change. You have an opportunity to learn how to merge and blend tech, technology, AI, all that. Whether we like it or not, that is the future. But it all has a responsibility. It all has moderation. So that this generation coming up, if the messaging to them from us was, Look at the opportunity you have. You are literally going to take the human race onto a path that it, in history we've never seen anything mm -hmm. like this happen. How exciting. Instead, turn on the news. What do you hear? It's doom right. and gloom. The end of the world's coming. Uh, there's no hope. The climate's killing everything. And you generation, you younger generations don't get it. Well, if you're told that enough, right. what's the result? You stop believing. Well, better yet. Let's say little Robert's a little hyper in fifth grade, which I'm assuming you probably were fifth or sixth grade. This Robert? And um, oh yeah, you. I'm talking to you now. You know, <laughs> you can't keep your pen inside the circle. I, I know I'm a therapist. But so mom and dad are concerned about little Robert. So they take him to the doctor and the doctor says, well, he's got attention deficit disorder. And here's a thing called Stratera. Just take it. It'll be fine. Instead of saying, He's got attention deficit mindset and we're going to cultivate this mindset and we're going to turn this into a superpower. And we're going to show little Robert that that fact he can't focus right now, when he does find something to focus on, he's going to be unstoppable. Why the hell don't we talk to our kids in that manner? We don't because we're lazy as adults. We're lazy as a society. We want fast answers, quick uh, responses. And so we diagnose, we come up with these ridiculous labels um, I think every single human being has attention deficit. It's a spectrum. I think every single human being has depression. It's a spectrum. I think every single human being has addiction. It's a spectrum. Why don't we approach it from that context instead of putting words like disorder on? Uh, I, I just, I think it's literally criminal the way that we're so quick to label our kids today. So now little Robert, fifth grade, takes Stratera because he has a disorder. And if little Robert doesn't take Stratera, he's going to eat his friends at midnight when he turns into a werewolf. So what's little Robert going to do when he's, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade? It doesn't, it doesn't get any better once you start him down the road of taking medicine and accepting diagnosis. So I'm trying to upset that apple cart with some of our initiatives we're doing. I'm not saying don't go to your doctor. I'm not saying don't take these things, but I'm saying look at them differently. Look at the mindset, how we change Things like survivor's guilt. Why can't that be survivor's opportunities? You know, why can't we do some free, inexpensive, non-pharmaceutically designed alternatives to, let me just ask you this question. If what we were doing was working, we wouldn't even be having these conversations, right? You wouldn't be working on your initiatives. I wouldn't be working on mine. If what we were doing was working and if 46,000 kids overdosed in 2016, 
and last year was 108,000. So that's just overdose. Suicide is a higher, alcohol deaths are higher. So Robert, we have a, a tough task in front of yeah. us as mental health advocates. We, we have to stop this, you know, mile size snowball piling downhill at us. And we got to figure out a way to, to stop it. And then once we stop it, then we got to figure out a way to get it going back up the hill. And, um, that's a tough, tall task that we have, you know, as advocates. Yeah. I, I you know, I think a story to kind of close it out on, on my side, um, as this is such an incredible advocate story, but also message to parents. And we hit earlier on just seeing that, that, that body language of our kids when they come to the mm -hmm. door and everything. So mm -hmm. when we launched the website and the video, Hayden, uh, Brad's video about Hayden went viral. Um, I was manning, personally manning the website. So, you know, there was the opportunity for people to message in. And then we also have Facebook, mm. which was also doing it. Brad handled most of the Facebook messaging. Um, and it was hundreds, thousands. Uh, I handled all the website stuff. And so I had one night where a message came in, opened it up, and it was a mom who was thanking Brad for saving her son's life. And here's how it happened. Mm. Uh, she had seen the video uh, that mm. Brad made about talking about Hayden. And a week later, her son comes in from school. He bypasses the kitchen. He gives her a nod. He heads upstairs to his bedroom. She said in the email, I would have never thought anything of it other than son had a bad day. I'll go ahead and start working on, you know, supper or whatever. But she saw that video and she was like, there's just something in the back of my mind. She said something in the back of my mind telling me to go upstairs. And she went upstairs and her son had overdosed. Oh man. And so she called 911. 911 got there. Mm. They got there in time. He did have, I think he, she said he was in a coma. It's been years, um, I think a week. But he survived. Oh, wow. He survived. And then in survival, she said, we are now communicating. That's the point. I think that that it's the, the, the impact that can be made watching this podcast or seeing something on an article or something on social media that alerts you as a parent to this problem, that this problem is in every household and it hides itself in so many different ways. If it's substance abuse or depression or whatever it may be we as adults have to be alert, see something, say yeah. something applies to this. Yep. So that was just a really neat thing to see that just that small thing, all she did was click on a video on her Facebook newsfeed and a week later it saved her son's life. And what it did for her is it triggered something to be more aware and going back to the attention issue I talked about with the kids, adults aren't any different. That mom and without seeing that video wouldn't have been aware of what was going on. And so the video got her to be aware. And that's kind of what we're thinking of in these initiatives we're trying to design is how do we get that trigger when you snap your finger and you, you know, you're in hypnosis and all of a sudden you go back to whatever you're supposed to be going back to. How do we get kids to embrace technology? to enhance their mental health. And, and at the end of the day, give them a chance, give them a fighting chance. Um, you know, not telling him, telling a kid, don't do drugs, don't have sex, don't go on TikTok. 
Good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, you know darn well if TikTok was around when you and I were 15, we would be on it just as much as any other kid. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you said earlier, we can't pass judgment just because we didn't have that stuff growing up. I, I know I would be, I'd be just like every other kid. So how do we use the one thing that's their worst enemy right now? How do we turn that into their best friend? Yeah. And I think we can, I I'm optimistic. I, I think there's enough smart people out there, business people out there that want to design these things that can make a difference. And, but again, I think we really got to focus on what we can do to grab their attention, but give them the ability to be autonomous, you know, not tell them what not to do. More importantly, show them with intention what to do, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, get a whole generation of kids to start looking at this beautiful thing called life as an opportunity, not a curse, you know, and adults too, we're, 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 you know, we're in the same boat in a way. There's a, there's many more adults today that are more unhappy with their lives than were 10, 15, 20 years and ago. We have all these, things, I know, all these materialistic things that are supposed to bring us happiness I know. And, and experience. And I mean, you think about going to, to a professional football game this past weekend versus 30 years ago, where it was the bare essentials of concessions and the bare essentials. And there was no replay being played up. Right. All these things. I mean, I'm using a really silly example there, but this is across the board. That right. These were supposed to make life easier. Why right. are they not? Yeah. Well, you and I are trying to figure it out, you know, and that's, that's why I admire what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think, like I said earlier, we're kind of on a collision course of working together on some of these initiatives because there's no downside to putting like-minded people together in a room and give them a whiteboard and say, you got an hour, you know, get to work. You know, that's kind of my mindset is like, I like to, I like to work under those constraints. Um, you know, some of the greatest things ever solved we're doing just that. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I always, uh, I'm a, I'm a kind of an astronomy nut and space nut. I got that from my dad. So Apollo 13 is one of my favorite films, but I yeah, still absolutely. think that, that is the example of what you're talking about. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. the doom and gloom was those three guys, uh, are not coming back. Mm -hmm. Um, the solution ended up being, you know, just magical and miraculous of these engineers on earth creating what they were able to create to number one, keep the guys alive. And number two, get them safely back to earth. And that to me is that's problem solving in a very, you know, fantastic Hollywood way, but that's right. every single day problem solving where you say, I cannot see a solution here, but all you got to do is just slow down, get some like-minded people around you, talk it out. Most of the time solution shows up. Just not. Yeah. And just going back to the whole tour this summer, uh, that stop in Atlanta was so special. Um, I just, those kids, you know, Taylor and Katie and all that the and other, other stops. Just the, just the, the feeling, just the karma, just the, the kids, you know, I, I love being around kids, you know, that's why your, your nonprofit, the generation next is like a perfect name because I love being around the next generation. I love, giving kids hope, you know, and I love, I love when kids look at me and they go, ah, Jeff, I'm sorry about your story. Um, but I really admire what you're doing. And I look back at them and I'm thinking to myself, I'm just setting the table 
for when you're at this table and you have a seat because you're going to lose a mom and dad. You're going to lose a brother and sister. You're going to lose a pet. You're going to lose a grandparents. You're going to lose a loved one. Um, it's a hundred percent guaranteed. If you live long enough, either you're going to die or somebody you, you care about is going to die. So how do you prepare for that? How do you evolve into those frame of minds when that happens? It's an opportunity and not, not, you know, not the end of you. And so I'm thinking in my mind that every action I do gives hope to somebody that hasn't yet had to go through. And I hope nobody ever has to go through what I went through, but unfortunately 800 families a day get that call. Um, and that's not considering cancers and car accidents and murders and, and all the other things. No. So it's, it's coming, it's inevitable. Something horrific will happen to all of us. So it's like, when it does, what are you going to do? You know? And I think that mindset is what drives all my projects really is, is trying to get and find out, you know, I don't have the answers. I have more questions than I have answers. Um, but to find people that have some answers that I can put together. So kids have a chance, you know, one kid that thought he was going to take his life today, decided to wait till tomorrow. And then tomorrow, that girl that he never thought would ask him out, asked him out. Now his heart flutters. And then that college that, you know, he turned down for a couple of colleges now, now he, and all of a sudden you know, things got better. Yeah. And you mentioned something too, that I really like, and I'm not sure if you were implying this, but you said something like when you get older, you look back and you realize kind of how insignificant a lot of things were in your life. That is so true. And I got a story with Ian and Roman. I used one time and we'll wrap up the show here. Cause this has been like the fastest hour I've ever done a podcast <laughs> is I was talking to them and they must've been like, they were old enough to reflect on their past. So they were like probably 12 and 10. And um, so Seth was still alive and our family unit was good. And Ian came home upset about something at school. And I said, you know, Ian, this reminds me of the time when you were in first grade and you came home crying because of that test you had. Do you remember that? And he goes, no, that's my point. There it is. That's my point. Because in five, six, seven, eight years down the road, you're not going to remember what you're going through right now. And that's how life works. Yeah. You know, my 90 year old dad doesn't remember the pain he had when he was 56. Um, and so we just got to get there. We got to find a way, keep fighting, tee it up, right? Love tee the ball no up, hit another ball. Hit a provisional, <laughs> go look for your first go, ball, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, go to the range, you know, get new clubs, get the technology. It's like golf and we'll end with this golf is just like the, the perfect metaphor of life. And, um, I just want to say, I'm really honored for our friendship. Um, I just am really excited about the future. I think, I think we can do a lot of good for a lot of people. Uh, and we have to do it quickly, man. We're running out of time. You know, that's one thing we don't have right now is a lot of time. Yeah, I think we talked about that on the last discussion, too, that, you know, that having that pressure, that time pressure um, can have us maybe act or try to act hastily to solve this. Um, mm -hmm. And that's added pressure on ourselves that um, is not good for us and our own mental well-being. Um, but it is you have the you have the same feeling because uh, obviously of personal experience that the sooner you can have these solutions out in the marketplace, the sooner that you can verify, you know, these, these life-saving situations and stuff. And, um, 
it's tough. It's, it's hard to sit there and say the problem is now. We're not trying to solve something that is going to start showing itself in three, five, seven years. It's here now. Um, keep taking time. Be patient. I told you that last time. Um, mm-hmm. And we will. We'll do some. We're, we're going to do great things. And I think the biggest um, piece of, of how I've kind of changed my perception of life in the past 12 months, the biggest one was removing the idea that success has to be valued by a dollar sign or something like that. I remember you saying that. I remember you saying that your bank account was your gauge, right? That's what you said. So dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is I like the way you just said it. it's so dumb. <laughs> a life is so much more valuable than that. Um, impacting others. Um, just, I used to joke. I used to joke when I was in the investment business, I said, you know, the Egyptians tried to take their money with them when they yeah. died, you know, they, and then people just robbed their tombs anyway and took it all oh, down the road. So you can't take any of this with you. Yeah. Uh, you can't even take your memories. So it's like, you know, we got one life, we got one chance. Um, we got one, one experience, you know, yeah. and, and that's why even golfing in the context of that round, you're two under par one hole to go and you double the last hole. That's still an experience. And you got to find some way to say, you know what, even though that's not the way I ended, it was a great day. You know, I had, I had a super day, was good. but we don't, we don't look at, we don't look at, most of us don't look at life that way, you know? No. And I'll say too, uh, last, lastly on my side, um, legacy is so big to me. So it's a word that I attached to when I started my company and it's so big and legacy essentially is how do you have value, um, that you have created from your life long after you're gone. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like th- this very simplistic way of saying this, but you want to find, tr- find true eternal life, be impactful, do something where mm-hmm. the story is told over and over and over again by your family, by friends. If you've done it magnificently by media, film, whatever it may be, but if you want to have that long lasting impact, that's, that's what legacy is. And just think if everybody on this earth lived mm. with that concept of what does it look like when I'm gone? Because I don't want a week later for everybody to forget that I was ever here. Right. I'm, I'm just not one of those guys. I want to be known and I want it to be appreciated. It's not an ego thing. That's, that's currency. Right. That's value. Not a dollar sign. Well, listen, um, really enjoy the show. I appreciate your candor and your authenticity and um, everything you're doing to not just continue the legacy of, of the Jones uh, family name, but your own legacy, you know, um, and you, you were very important in talking about that when I heard you speak about, you know, you want your own. That's why it says Robert Black here on my screen, yeah. um, you know, because you've, you've got your own identity. It's tied to the Jones lineage, but it's not really who you are. You know, you're Robert Black and, and, um, I admire you for that. Cause a lot of people hang under those last names and, um, you know, they become trust fund babies or they just, um, they run it out, but you've, you've started your own offshoot of a legacy. And I really admire you for that, man. Well, I, I appreciate it. And it was, it was just a, a point where, um, you know, telling and retelling that legacy, that, that Bobby Jones legacy is, is absolutely important. But I was like, it can't mm. define who I am. That's a responsibility right. I have. 
But if I want to, right. I, I'm looking at him as a, if you want to really look at him as like a role model and I want to say, I want to be like my great granddad, then it's go create something that's yours and specialize in it. And heaven forbid, if whatever that is, if it's mental health or whatever, if I get anywhere close to perfecting it in the same way that Bobby Jones came so close to perfecting this impossible game, then I've done good. Well, certainly they don't want to rely on your golf, your golf handicap for the, yeah, <laughs> the legacy. There's no the intro into the podcast, just as long as I don't see any, like, uh, some, somebody was taking some video behind the tree of my golf game. I'll find some great stock footage of shanks and hooks and all that stuff. Uh, you and I would have the same round of golf. Trust, trust me. Um, well, listen, how do people reach you? What's the best way to contact you if people want to learn more? Uh, black at generationnextproject.org. Uh, find more about the uh, the program that we're creating, the Change Your Course program at the website, www.generationnextproject.org. Uh, donations can go there. We're going to start a really fun uh, fundraising campaign in mid-November. Stay tuned on that, where we're actually, again, going to take the game of golf and use the game of golf as a almost gamifying fundraising, where instead of playing a true golf hole, your fundraising is actually playing the golf hole and you make par birdie eagle bogey. Oh, cool. It's going to be awesome. We can't wait to get that out. It'll be November 14th when we launch that. Yeah. Let me know. I'll, I'll share it on my yeah, platform. Get a team well. put together and uh, we'll have some great prizes and, uh, and a, a grand prize for uh, what team does the best and what individual does the best. But right now for the next uh, three to six months, uh, we talked about the dollar signs, uh, but when especially when you're on these missions like you and I are, funding is what really excels this. And so yeah. uh, we're going to spend the next three to six months really focused on getting the funding in so we can accomplish what we want to in 2023. So, but, oh, and yeah. by the way, Jeff, you got to return the yeah. favor now. So we're going to do an interview so that I can put you up on my sub stack and tell your story. I love it. Good. I love your sub stack, by the way. Thank you. Um, I did the stories that, um, I've seen so far. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know you're working on a book too. Yes. Um, I'm excited to see the finished project there. It looks to be very inspirational, um, which that what I think that's what you're setting out to do with it, right? It, 100% try to just change some people. And I'm working, uh, I've actually got an interview this week, which will be a really different perspective of golf and purpose with uh, a gentleman that I met out in Las Vegas that um, had seven tours of duty. Mm. Uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, his story is uh, going to be different, difficult, but inspiring. But yes, that's it. And um, that is, if anybody wants to follow that, robertjonesblack.substack.com. Mm -hmm. And Substack's a great tool where I can write something and just pop it into your mailbox and you read it at your leisure. Well, listen, normally I end every show with keep living undeterred, but for you, I'm going to say keep it in the short grass. Keep it in the short grass. Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> this has been so fun. All right, brother. Take care, man. Thank we'll talk soon. You got it.